you could find your seats, and we're going to read the word together. And if you would stand with me. We are in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a, it is a mystery that, uh, that your Son took on human nature to be like one of us. It is, is mind-boggling. It is almost incomprehensible that um, he would humble himself, take on flesh, And it's even more humbling that he would that he would die and humble himself to death on the cross. And for that we are truly thankful for this season. In Christ's name, Amen. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does And the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. Good to be with you this morning and so good to be uh, back home. Last weekend, uh, those of you that didn't know, last weekend we, Michelle and I, had an opportunity to go and visit uh, the Talbots. Some of you don't know who the Talbots are, but here's a picture of Pastor Adam and Libby. And last weekend we went to Salt Lake City. Uh, For those of you who don't know who Adam and Libby are, Pastor Adam was the pastor here for about a decade, and over the last year or two, it's been about two years now, they have been transitioning from here to the Middle East, and many of us have watched them uh, shed many of their belongings. How many of you were at their home in that last week they were here? Yeah, we've got their vacuum cleaner in the closet over here. Got some stuff at our house from their house. So we watched them shed things as they moved from here and then set up a base camp in Salt Lake City, uh, Libby's parents' home in their basement. And they have continued to shed things there. And we were there their last few days. They left on Friday and they're in Amman, Jordan now. Their last few days, we got to see them shed their material possessions uh, down to two 50-pound suitcases each. Would that be a journey for you? (laughs) Can you imagine getting everything you have? I mean, just my garage, 
I mean, let alone the house. Everything down to two 50-pound suitcases. Anyway, it, is, it was just uh, wonderful to be with them and to have fellowship with them. And I, I just got a text from Adam this morning. They're getting ready to go to bed over there uh, in Amman, and they're staying in a hotel. They're getting ready to get their place set up. They've already been to Ikea in, uh, in Jordan, and we'll be assembling their uh, furniture in, in the coming days. And Lord willing, next week, we will, uh, we will uh, technology willing, we will, what's it called? Skype. That's, that's it. Skype teleconference with them live during the worship service. So I'm looking forward to uh, doing that next week. Hopefully uh, you will be here and be able to be, uh, be a part of that. Well, transitioning now back to Advent. Uh, the, there is an author of uh, a newspaper, not an author, a man, man who wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper. Uh, his name is uh, uh, Alex Clark. He gives four reasons how to get through Christmas. Four reasons how to get through Christmas. He writes, uh, your present, either provide make, model number, color, size, and web address, or resign yourself to your fate. Uh, Number two, other people's presents, one shop, one hour, one present per person. Uh, Number three, you will be tempted to clean the house. Don't. That's all. And then uh, number four, and he had more, but I just chose four of them. Number four, seed control of the television. You will look like a saint, and there is absolutely nothing decent on ever. Play Call of Duty in the shed instead. Now, I'm just curious, how many people here have ever played Call of Duty? We have. Oh, yes, I see one. All right. Okay, I see some bold hands. Okay, I haven't played Call of Duty, but for those of you that are illiterate like me, I think that's a video game. And what, what we... What we have here is, uh, there might be a little bit of wisdom here, but what we have is the acknowledgement of of the busyness of the Christmas season and all of these things going on, and it's a difficult time for some for that reason, but it's also a difficult time because Christmas is, is sometimes a lonely time or a grieving time as people are missing others, relationships that are broken or people that are no longer with us, and we do need help in how to get through Christmas. But I want to suggest that this is not probably the place we need to go. Can I get an amen on that? We, we, we need to go to the Word of God to help us get through Christmas. And that's what today's message is about. Not just to help us get through Christmas, but to help us get through life. We need to turn to His Word. So let's uh, turn there. The passage that was read today, if you're not already there, it's Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at just this short paragraph that Jim just read for us. And it is at the very end of what many uh, theologians call and what I would refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. Now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is is kind of more well known and and more popular. And some people think that Luke chapter 6, that this is just a summary kind of of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that this is the same thing. But if you look back just very briefly, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 6 and look back to uh, verse 17, it says, He went down with them and stood on a level place. And if we had more time, we could look at all of the differences between this sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, which was given on a level place, and that sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So I think what we have in chapter 6 is a different sermon. 
uh, similar themes, a lot of similar themes, but we have a different sermon. And if you have heard preachers preach in a variety of places or in different churches, you're going to hear a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same things going on. And that's what we have here in Luke chapter 6. So let's uh, take a look at the very end of this sermon on the plain, beginning at verse 46. Let me, let me read it again. It says, why do you call me? This is Jesus speaking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So notice here in verse 46 that Jesus is not addressing the Pharisees. He's not addressing the scribes. He's not addressing skeptics or, or atheists. He is addressing us, if you will. He's addressing people who profess faith in Jesus. He is saying at the end of the Sermon on the Plain, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Master? And you don't do what I say. This, this, this is a cry out. This is a call. This is a challenge for those who, who, who hear Jesus' word, to hear Jesus' teaching, who in the first century context heard this sermon on the plain. For us, those who are reading this sermon written in the word of God, this is a call for us to connect our profession of our faith and our lives. They must go together. This is what Jesus is emphasizing. He is speaking to us. Lord, Lord, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? But there is hope in this paragraph. It is is not just like a a nasty way to to beat us up and say, uh, you're never going to make it. Uh, There is is a massive amount of encouragement in this passage. And we see this in this imagery. Look at the imagery in verse 48 with me. For those who come to Jesus, those who hear his words, those who put his words into practice, we can be like this house whose foundation is on a rock. And when floods come and when torrents come and when tribulations come and when difficult seasons of life come, when a Christmas season comes where you are lonely or grieving or busy, you can stand firm and you can stand firm throughout all of life. And how does this happen? This happens as we come to Jesus, as we hear his words and we put them into practice. Notice in verse 48, this emphasis on effort. This follower of mine who's going to be like this house that withstands the torrents. This this believer who is like that house, he is someone who puts in a lot of effort. You see it at the beginning of verse 48. This is a man, this is a woman who digs down deep, who lays the foundation on rock. But there is effort and there is discipline and there is uh, there, there is intensity that goes on to prepare myself spiritually so that I can live and withstand whatever comes my way in life. Tremendous uh, illustration in my mind of the strength of a foundation. Uh, I don't know if you can see this kind of well. It's kind of a little bit dark up here, but this is the silhouette of my oldest son's face. And we are up atop One World Trade Center. This was just a few weeks ago. 
and you get a, a perspective of how high this building is, 1,776 feet high, as you see that little little toothpick off to the left. Do you see that little toothpick? Thank you. Thank you. Somebody knows that I like interaction while I'm preaching. This, that little toothpick is the Statue of Liberty, this, this massive building. But we were able to go uh, underground, uh, not under that building precisely, but underground right near there at the 911 memorial. And we saw the, the natural rock in the earth that's under the ground there. And how this building, One World Trade Center, they described how it is anchored in this rock. And how incredibly well built this building is. It's designed to withstand an airplane that would hit it, a commercial airplane, and remain standing. I'm going to show you just a brief uh, video here. If someone wants to bring the lights down just a little bit. It's just a minute or two long. Showing the power and strength of a foundation of this building. It just shows how impressive this building is. Let's take a look at it. This tower may be the most complex and costly building ever constructed on American soil. It will be a place where people will come to work and to remember. We all saw a lot of things that you know, we weren't meant to see, we should never have to see. Out of the shadows cast in this city's darkest hour, we lost much on September 11th. We lost 3,000 people. We lost our offices. We lost Lower Manhattan. It will rise a symbolic 1,776 feet. Now, the race is on to get it finished. It was a national imperative from the president on down to rebuild. Whatever was built needed to be the safest building in the world anywhere, period. This is the inside story of the final push to build the tallest skyscraper in the Western Hemisphere. The toughest skyscraper anywhere. This is One World Trade Center, and it is a super skyscraper. It's an incredible building. You ready to go to New York City now and go up there? Anybody? No, no, yes, at least two of you want to go. It, it is worth going to. The reason that I've shown this video, the reason I've got this picture up here is to help us have an image, uh, not, not just of a house, but of a, of a super skyscraper that can withstand whatever comes its way. This is the hope of the message of the gospel, that you and I can live lives that are strong and can withstand whatever is coming our way that we can endure, that we don't need to be full of anxiety or fear or nervousness, but that we can withstand airplanes, torrents, sicknesses, broken relationships, whatever comes our way in life. So what I want to do in the remainder of this message is to help us see what do we have to do, what does it look like to dig down in, in my life so that my life is, is strong and robust like this house that Jesus describes at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, how many of us here today, just raise your hands, are, are professing faith in Jesus and want to live lives that, that are robust and strong and healthy? Can I see some hands out there? Th this is, 
this is my desire for us today as we get into his word to help us to be the kind of people that would would dig down deep. So let's we're going to look at three things today, mostly out of verse 47. But let me go briefly on the screen here to first Timothy four, seven, which says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And I'm putting this on the screen to emphasize the yourself part. Okay, so how do I become godly? How do I become like like this solid house? How do I become like one World Trade Center anchored in the rock? Well, some people might say, well, you have to find the very best preacher in order to be fed. You've got to find the right church. You've got to find the right place. Now, we want to be in a church that preaches the word, but I want to say that in light of 1 Timothy 4.7, it is not the preacher's responsibility to make you godly. How many of us have heard someone say, well, I've been going to church, but I'm not really getting fed? How many of us have said that or heard it? The responsibility for godliness is upon yourself to feed yourself to nourish yourself, to dig down deep in the rock so that your life will be strong. So again, as I said, most of today's message is coming out of verse 47, but I wanted to just hit this to emphasize that the Lord is expecting us to dig deep, to work hard, to apply effort, and to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. But back to verse 47, I see three things here. The first thing I see Jesus says, I will show you what he is like, what he or she, the man or woman of God is like, who comes to me. So the first thing is that we need to seek him above all else. We need to come to him. Now, he is referring literally to those who are coming and hearing his preaching. In the context of Luke 6, wherever this sermon was given, in a flat area somewhere, they need to come and seek him above everything else. You need to come to Jesus. Mark chapter 12 says this. It says uh, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them. Okay, I'm not going to get frustrated with this thing today, right? It wouldn't be good for me to lose self-control while I'm preaching. So you can pray for me as I'm as I'm preaching here. But I'm just letting you know some of my weaknesses um, I'm, I'm way off uh, track here, but how many of us um, would appreciate a special uh, confession time related to technology? Okay, so we might, we might work that in um, in a few weeks. I'm just trying to advance my slides here, and I don't know what, what's going on. So, um, so we'll work that in in a few weeks into confession, um, confession related to uh, sin coming out of technological frustrations. Okay, so here we are, Mark 12, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. When we read things in the scriptures like there is no greater commandments than these, we want to pay attention. When we read in the scriptures like we do in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is of first importance and then Paul describes the gospel, we want to pay attention. So this is foundational to being 
like One World Trade Center. This is foundational to being like that house that is dug down in rock. The foundation is dug down in rock that withstands the storms that we understand that at the core of our faith, at the core of who we are, is having a longing to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have to seek God first above all things in life. Now, the problem is, is that we regularly love things with greater affection and with greater emotion and with greater power. We regularly love things uh, more than we love God or they displace God. And for us as believers, my observation is most of those things that we love that take the place of God in our lives are, are things that are good and, and things that we, we should love, but we end up loving them in the place uh, of God. The Bible calls this idolatry. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. I, I could give you many in my life, but I'll give you one uh, from, from my own life going back to when uh, Michelle and I were dating just prior to when we uh, got engaged. I was living in Santa Barbara. She was living in L.A. And my thoughts were often on her. Okay? You know where I'm talking about? I mean, my thoughts were on her a lot. And I was highly motivated to be with her and to see her. And we're getting close to, I'm getting close to getting up the courage to ask her parents to, to marry her. And my life and my affections for God were ending up being displaced by my affections and my love for her. My love for her was a good love, but it ends up becoming all-consuming. And it, ends, it ended up at times becoming uh, an obsession or an infatuation, and the Lord had to do things to, to open my eyes to this. One of the things I, I look back on, I had this, this little motorcycle, this uh, Honda XL250, which might be a surprise to you, but well, once I got married, I wasn't allowed to have motorcycles anymore. You know that too, okay. So I didn't have, I, I, had, I wasn't married yet, so I had this motorcycle, and it was very trail-worthy, this motorcycle, okay? It, it was good on the trail, it was good to ride in the mountains in Santa Barbara, but I rode the thing to Los Angeles on the 101 freeway, this little 250. Like, it would go 60 on a downhill grade with a wind at my back, you know? And so I have memories of going up the Conejo grade uh, there uh, out of uh, Oxnard, Camarillo area, just like praying that the Lord would, would get me up this thing. And we made a couple, I made a couple trips on that, and uh, then eventually... Uh, on the way back at a very uh, memorable spot, Rincon, a famous spur, uh, surf spot, on the way back, that engine finally just gave up. It just gave up. And I'm on the side walking to these beach houses uh, trying to figure out where to go as, as my motorcycle uh, is done. And, and I remember uh, thinking about how things were a little bit out of whack here and how I had been neglecting other relationships and I haven't been loving my neighbors. I've been ignoring my neighbors. And sometimes we laugh or we, we see someone who's in a, in a relationship, in a, in a romantic relationship, and they kind of get all consumed and, and goo-goo-eyed and gaga and so on. And, and we, we kind of smile at that. We, we kind of like that. But, but the reality is from a biblical perspective, any time, even something that is good, a relationship that is good, that becomes too consuming, it be, we become excessively attached to that. We end up displacing God and we end up not loving that other person the way that we should. 
the way that we really love that person is to love God. And it's not as though there's a list and God's at n- number one and my wife now is number two. It's, it's more like Jesus is at the very center of a bullseye and all of these things in life are, are in a periphery, sometimes outside of him. And in order to, to love those other things, our, our spouses, our children, our fiancés, whatever, whoever it is that we're in relationship with, we, we have to love him first and foremost. So if we're going to be the kind of people who dig down deep and are going to be robust, we have to be loving God more than anything else in our lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, writes this about this issue. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I still love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, and instead of God, I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. So for me to really love my wife now, the way I love her is not to obsess over her or to think about her more than I ought, where I would be neglecting love of neighbor and other relationships, But when I love God first and foremost, then my love for her is brought into the right place. So all of this is coming out of verse 47, where we see three things here. Number one, the person who's going to dig down deep and have a strong life anchored in the rock is going to be coming to Jesus, is going to be seeking him out, going to be loving him Uh, more than anything else in the world. And then these other things will be put in their place. The second thing we see in verse 47 is that we hear his word. We hear it daily. We hear it hourly. Uh, the, The person who comes to him hears his words. Now, we have so many things competing for our attention with our phones and with the Internet and and and. TV and media and and all of these things. If we are going to be men and women who withstand whatever comes in life, if we're going to be the kind who exert energy and our lives go deep down in rock, in the rock, uh, in, in in a foundation of rock, we need to have a daily intake of God's word. In Psalm 119, it says this, your Lord is a, uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. If we are going to be anchored, if we are going to make it through Christmas, we're going to make it through life, God's word needs to be the thing that illuminates our way. And so we have to regularly be in God's word. Whatever that looks like, there's a million different ways to do it, but we need to discipline ourselves for godliness and be in his word. We not only need to be in it, but then there are occasions where we read God's word and there are certain sections of it that will just jump off the page. Sometimes they're really encouraging verses. Sometimes they're really convicting verses. And they're things that we need to internalize, things that we need to memorize. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I'm encouraging you this morning. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I'm encouraging you, if you don't have a plan for a regular intake, a daily intake, where you are disciplining yourself to be in God's Word, you have to have that. Now, once you have that, as you're reading, there will be times where where God's Word 
where you come across something and you're like, I need that. And, and that I need, to, I, I need to hide in my heart. I need to memorize. I need to dwell on that. And you might even pause your, your, your plan and actually dwell on that on coming days or memorize it or, or whatever. And let me share with you just a recent uh, experience of my own in this. A few weeks ago, I was uh, in God's Word preparing uh, for the sermon uh, in Mark chapter 5. And uh, for those of you who don't, don't remember that, that sermon, I'm, I'm really good at forgetting my own sermons. But this particular, uh, what, what, this particular thing I will not forget because the Holy Spirit just illuminated these, these words off of the page and said, you need to dwell on these. And I won't go into the details, but I have been struggling with some anxieties and with some fears. And the story that I was reading we, we looked at it just some weeks ago. The story is this man who comes and finds Jesus and he wants his daughter healed. His daughter is desperately ill. And he goes and he finds Jesus and Jesus says, all right, let's go to, to the house where the ill daughter is and I'll heal her. And on the way there, Jesus gets interrupted by this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And then they're still on their way to the house where the sick daughter is. And then the, the news comes and the, the men come with, with the word and say, she's already dead. You don't need to bother the teacher any longer. You remember this passage? Remember this sermon? One of you does. Do you remember this passage? Remember this sermon? Okay. Um, so I'm preparing for this. I'm reading that passage. And I, and I see just there's the thrust of it in, in just a couple words in, in the Greek New Testament. It, it's in just four words. It says, uh, do not fear, only believe. It's kind of how it's translated in English. Do not fear, only believe. So the message has just come, this, this man who's just wanting his daughter healed, the message has just come that she's dead. And, and, and Jesus says, you don't need to fear. You, you only need to believe in me. You only need to trust in me. And, and that, that truth, those words just leapt off the page. And, and literally, that's, that was weeks ago, I have been meditating almost daily on that theme and feeding my own soul and, and getting rid, to a degree, of fears and anxieties because of the truth of God's Word that I've hidden in my heart so that I'm not sinning and being anxious and being fearful. And so when you are regularly in God's Word, there will be times where, gosh, not a whole lot really happened today. I read this passage. I'm not sure what I got from it. Other times, the passages will leap off the page. And I need to, to dwell and meditate and memorize on that truth. I need to put it on the refrigerator or on my dashboard or, or maybe you shouldn't put it on your dashboard, right? Well, at stoplights, you could look at it on your, on your dashboard. I don't want someone getting in an accident. Yeah, I was memorizing scripture. I'm driving down Highway 49 and my pastor told me to put it on there. I, I don't, I don't want, that to, want that to happen. You put it someplace. So if we want to be strong if we want to be anchored we've got to come to him first and foremost we've got to have a regular intake of his word and then the thing that is emphasized most in verse 47 is the third part of this verse putting it into practice we need to apply the word how to get through christmas this message is really about how to get through life I hope you're seeing a massive contrast between what God's Word says and what the newspaper article said at the beginning of the sermon. We need to apply the Word of God regularly into our lives. So we need to 
come to him, we need to understand his word, and then we actually need to apply and do that, those things that he has, he has said. And we're going to look at a couple things very briefly from this actual sermon, kinds of things uh, from the Sermon on the Plain that he would be wanting us to do. But let me give you a little bit of a broader picture here of what we're talking about. A fancy word for applying the word of God into our lives, of us becoming holy, becoming loving, is, a, is the word sanctification. So I want to just say a few things about our sanctification. It divides really into two categories. In the first category, or before we get to those two categories, instead of giving you a formal definition of sanctification, let me just give it to you in a verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Now just a comment on that first phrase. He's distinguishing believers who study God's word and see his and, and have unveiled faces. That is, we actually see that Jesus is the Messiah as we read the Old Testament. Some people are studying the Old Testament. They're studying the word of God, but they're not seeing Jesus as the Messiah. So we are people with unveiled faces. We actually recognize in the scriptures of the Old Testament that, that Jesus is the Messiah and reflect the Lord's glory. But that's all secondary. The reason I put this verse up here is the green part. This is our basic definition, if you will, of a scriptural definition of sanctification, that we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Sanctification is a process of becoming holy, of becoming loving, and you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, are in a process of being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing sense of glory. We are becoming more and more Christ-like as we love him, as we understand his word, and as we apply his word. This whole process is called sanctification, and it divides basically into two categories. In the first category, we call mortification. This might be an unfamiliar term for you. The term isn't that important, but the idea in it is. And mortification is the spirit-led process of removing sin from the believer's thought life and actions. It involves the ceasing of sinful thoughts and deeds. Mortification is negative. It is the negative part. It's the removal part of our spiritual lives, of our sanctification. One man who's written beautifully and expertly on this subject is a man named John Owen. And he writes this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is basically a description of what mortification is, that we actually put sin to death in our own lives. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, how do we do this? John Owen, again, he writes this. He says, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. What he's getting at here is that mortification has to genuinely, for it to be genuine, it has to be a work of the Spirit. It has to be a work of God. So, if you're like me and you're thinking now, okay, so we just read discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and we've got Jesus teaching us that we've got to be, he's given us this image that we've got to dig deep, lots of self-effort here, but we see John Owen and we see other passages saying that in order to do anything, it has to be 
a work of grace. It has to be a work of the Spirit. So what is it? Do we have to work really hard or do we rely on the Holy Spirit to make us holy and righteous? And the answer is yes, right? The answer is we have to do both of these things. So mortification is the first of these categories, first of the two categories of sanctification. And then the other category is called vivification. Anybody ever heard of this word before? Got some new words today. All right, at least a few of you have. So vivification. Vivification, easy for me to say. The spirit-led positive process of thinking noble thoughts and doing good things that glorify God. So we have these two dimensions, putting sin to death and then doing things for the glory of God, putting things in our lives away and putting sin to death, doing great things for his glory. So let me give you a couple examples of this and, and uh, we'll finish up here in just, just a few minutes out of this sermon. I want to give you an example of what mortification is, an example of vivification as well. So let's look back at the sermon very briefly, verse 37. All right, so I've got to turn my page back. So the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says in verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. This would be an example of mortification, of getting rid of something bad that is in our hearts and in our lives. What he's saying in his sermon, Sermon on the Plain in verse 37. So when he says, do not judge and you won't be judged, do not condemn, and you won't be condemned. What, what, what is he getting at here? Well, we know he's not getting at that we shouldn't do church discipline. We have that spelled out in Matthew 18. If a brother goes astray, we're given instructions on what to do. So that's not what he's referring to. He's not referring to that there are standards that we are to keep and that we should just uh, ignore those, that there are standards of righteousness and holiness uh, that God has. So what, what does he mean when he says that we shouldn't judge and we shouldn't condemn? Well, here he's speaking not so much to uh, professing believers as he does in verse 46, but in verse 37, he's speaking to those Pharisees and Sadducees who have a tendency to look down because of their self-righteousness on other people's sins. Now, you and I may not be Pharisees and Sadducees, but we have Pharisaical tendencies, you and I. So to contextualize this, what he's getting at, let's just suppose that you struggle with heterosexual lust. All right? I got everyone's attention now? Let's just suppose you struggle with that. And let's suppose someone that you know struggles with homosexual lust. And let's suppose that you look down and judge and condemn from your righteous perspective this person who's struggling with homosexual lust because you don't struggle in that area at all. That is the kind of attitude that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 37. Not to judge, not to condemn others, but to focus on our own sin and to put our own sin to death. Both sins need to be dealt with. But it is not our role primarily to identify the sins that other people have that we don't struggle with and to look down at them from a lofty position. So we need to put to death that kind of self-righteousness, that kind of condemning. Did you get that? Okay. so this is what it means to apply the word of God in the sense 
of mortification. Just one brief example. A second brief example for vivification out of verse 38. Let's look at this together. In his Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. So we have this idea of of blessing coming to the believer when the believer gives, when the believer has a heart of generosity, when the, when the believer wants to share what he has in order to give uh, to others. Uh, th- this would be an example of vivification. Lord, help me to be a generous person. Help me this Christmas season not to be fixated on, on what I'm getting or on what I want, but, but help me to, to observe needs that are out there and to give. And the Lord says, I, I, I'm going to bless you. He doesn't say I'm going to bless you with, with Mercedes or millions of dollars, but he's going to bless your soul if you become the kind of person that, that is giving. So this is an example, brief example of vivification. So let me close this morning by kind of giving us, giving you a, a, a chart, an idea here of, of where we begin. And this, this whole thing is, is cyclical, but where we begin in the sanctification process. We generally begin with wrong actions and with a wrong heart. Our, our hearts are, are sinful, we're selfish, and we often do the wrong thing. So I'll give you, give you kind of a, an example here of myself. Wrong actions and a wrong heart. So have I mentioned to you guys I like mountain biking? So uh, a wrong action and a wrong heart, let's, let's suppose that I am coveting my neighbor's mountain bike. And I do not have the money to buy that bike. I'm coveting it. I mean, when I lie down at night, I'm like thinking about that bike, okay? It's, it's just awesome. And I'm thinking about that bike, and I'm coveting that bike. And so my heart's in the wrong place. And now I don't have the money to go buy that bike, but I've got a credit card that's got a big, uh, big uh, limit. So I go and I buy that bike. And now I've got this bike, and I couldn't afford it, and I didn't need it. I've got another bike that works just fine, uh, but I, I go and do that. So there's wrong actions and a wrong heart. So I'm giving you just kind of an image of what sanctification looks like. So the, the, the next step in sanctification might be, okay, I, I know I don't need that bike. I know I should be content with the bike that I have. Uh, so I avoid buying the bike. Okay, my actions are right. I'm not going to go spend the money on the credit card. I'm not going to go buy the bike. But my heart is still at night just dreaming of that thing. Okay, anybody relate to me here? Anybody? Anybody? anybody You know, my, my heart wants that thing. It's still controlling me in a sense, and my desires are there. And so what, what I want to do is, is get to a place, and this only happens by the work of God, that, that I, I realize I don't need that bike that I am content with the bike that I have and I'm no longer lying in bed at night dreaming about that bike. So we can apply this kind of idea of of where we begin and where we want to end up in almost any area of life. The, The scripture doesn't use the word alcoholic. It uses the word drunkard. So we could apply this to that person. Wrong heart, wrong actions. I, I want this thing in this bottle. And I'm going to go and I'm going to get it and I'm going to drink it and, and I'm going to get drunk. Well, then that person might move to the point. I know that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. But, but, but they're just lying in bed at night, just longing and wanting that thing. 
But real sanctification, real mortification, real vivification is when the Lord Jesus comes into that person's life in such a way that the desires now are gone to be drunk. And I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so not only am I sober, but my heart is in the right place. And that only is accomplished by the Holy Spirit and by the work of God. And that's what Owen was getting at. And that's what you and I need to get after. And you can insert whatever you need to in, in this own process. But let's, let's go before the Lord now and bow our heads and ask him to help us to, to, to make us strong this Christmas season and indeed throughout our lives. Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray, I pray today that we would be a people that don't leave church just feeling miserable and convicted, but that we would feel hopeful and eager this morning, and really every morning that we come to church. Lord, I pray that we would apply the gospel today. Lord, if our hearts and our actions have been in wrong places, we pray that we would repent of those right now, that we would know that we're forgiven, that we would know that the Christian life is a battle, that there are no such thing as perfect Christians. But Lord, there are Christians who are strong and whose lives are, are like a building, like a, like a skyscraper built in, in rock, like a house that withstands the floodwaters that come. Lord, I pray that you would make each of us those kinds of Christians. And as a church, you would make us a unified whole, a body full of people who are living out the gospel of Jesus. And increasingly, as we, as we lie our heads down in our pillows at night, we are thinking, thoughts that are true and noble and right and pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.